Mach 3 Gimme Crew Show on 2, 3, and 4. Mach 3, give me start in line 2. 500. Mach 3, give me start line 1 and crew show on 7 and 9. Mach 1, crew show 7 and 9. Do something. I hate that. Super Ops, Line 3, Red Ball, Avionics. Super Ops, Line 7 is Code 3 for Flickas. Fuck. Hey, so I started a Patreon because frankly, this stuff's getting expensive. Nothing will change the podcast or the blog if you don't subscribe, but if you want early access to episodes, monthly AMAs, episode shoutouts, voting on podcast topics, and all kinds of 20 Years Done gear, head over to patreon.com slash 20 years done. This month's top tier Patreon shoutout goes to Kevin Traw, Robbie Walker, Travis Barnes, JT Owens, and Delinda Baker. Thanks for the support. Okay, so uh, this week I'm joined by Curtis, also known as Chief Master Sergeant Retired Ott, depending on the formality of the introduction. We talked um, a couple episodes ago about your experiences in the military, and really that was just a primer to get to know you. Uh, before we kind of delved into some topics. And today's topic is going to be micromanagement, which uh, I, I don't know why I had not thought of discussing this. So I really appreciated that in our conversation, I think it was offline or at the end of the conversation uh, last time, uh, we talked about it briefly. and I knew that was going to be a rabbit hole that I wasn't willing to go down. So I wanted to devo uh, devote an entire episode to micromanagement. But I said something to the effect of, I think micromanagement is one of the biggest problems in the Air Force. It's very often overlooked. Uh, what do you think? It is. I, I have worked for micromanagers in the past that, uh, you know, they've um, caused a lot of anxiety as it pushes down to the airmen because their management goes to the, the next level below them, then the next level below them, and everybody's responsible as it goes up the, the chain to, you know, the, that particular micromanager. And it could be the micromanager could be at the, you know, at the AMU level. It could be at the squadron level or it could be at the group or even, believe it or not, at the wing level. Yeah, absolutely. And I think very often it may be because I didn't have much exposure to the wing just because of where I was in my career. Uh, but it d definitely seemed like it was emanating from the group. And it would. It, what was interesting is it would snowball as it went down too. Like very often it would be a, a very sh small ask by the group commander of, you know, well, what do you, you know, I can't think of a good example off the top of my head, but something like, well, well can we look into that? Something mm -hmm. very sort of offhand. And then all of a sudden that turned into the squadron commander or the moo kind of feeling like they had to exhaustively answer to their boss. And I think a lot of it ties into the careerism conversation too of, you're afraid to say no, and you're afraid to look bad in front of your boss. So what that does is it drives up like a personal stake in that outcome, which is, mm -hmm. I think, is the big fuel for micromanagement. Well, uh, yeah, when I, and just real quick on that, uh, when I was at uh, PACAF, um, I we would were briefing the PACAF commander, uh, which was a four-star. And um, worst things that you could ever hear a four-star commander say is, you know, I wonder. Right. And I leaned forward to one of the lieutenant colonels that I worked with, and I, you know, whispered in his ear, and I was a master sergeant, I said, 
I feel taskers coming on. And sure enough, before we even got back to our office, we had, you know, three or four taskers in our inbox to, you know, respond to his, you know, I wonder, and it really wasn't him wondering. It was just him thinking out loud. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that was my question to you. Like, do you think when they say the, you know, you know, I wonders, do you think that's really a, a, a passive way to get that information they want? Or do you think it's really them like legitimately and honestly just thinking out loud and really not expecting an answer? In some cases, it's their passive way of trying to get information. And sometimes it's literally just them thinking out loud. And for fear of not responding to the bosses, I wonder, everybody has now is geared up for the I wonder. That's a great point, too, because if the boss is using the same phrase between a a subtle ask and just a daydream or whatever, if he's using the same keywords of I wonder, then as a lower person, you can't tell the difference between the the specific thing he really wants for information as a leader to decide. And the thing that's like, like, I see the I wonder as whenever I see something and I don't know how the fuck it works, I'll literally just Google like, how does this work? Like, that's mm-hmm. an I wonder to me. And that very well might be what this general or the colonel or whoever's saying. Mm-hmm. Like, I wonder how a JFS works. Those are things that you can kind of like research on your own and may not need your mood to run down and grab your lead super or flight chief and pull up a good seven off the line to come up and explain something. But I, if they don't realize that if they use the same words for the G whiz versus the I need this information, then what they do is they create an environment where all the all the I wonders turn into research and running around. Absolutely, absolutely. And I found I found uh, being in that environment, we were chasing a lot of a lot of information down and spending a lot of time and effort on information that really wasn't going to be used in the decision. And you know, I don't want to say we were friends with the vice commander. But we knew them pretty well. And one day I was sitting, you know, talking to him and I said, you know, when you guys say I wonder, you know that that spools up this thing. He kind of laughed. He goes, yeah. And sometimes we're just wondering. I wonder if they do it that way, because then they can be absolved of any of the work that kind of derives from that. Like, I mean, cognitively or psychologically, if like, well, I was just wondering and that that any man hour spent getting that information they can, well, I didn't specifically ask for that. So I didn't create that work. They were just go-getters and they got that information to me. Well, yeah. And, and what I learned over the years and being in that, uh, in that environment, uh, even our, our two-star at, at ACC, they have, they have a need for a lot of information because some of the decisions that they have to make require a lot of intake of information and when they're sitting at the table with the four star and the four star turns to them and asks a question they have to have that information already been processed through the course of their their work their everyday meetings and that type of thing so sometimes you're trying to feed that level of information for them to be smart when they go sit with the you know the four star or the three star or whatever well, that's interesting too. And this is probably going to be the final takeaway and I might be getting like an hour ahead of ourselves. But I think a lot of it has to do with trust. The four star needs an answer to a question in order for him to make that critical decision. 
And then the two star, the colonel or whoever is going to go, yes, we can. No, we can't. Right. And that very well might be from the colonel getting that from the major or the chief of, can we do this? And then the chief is the one that actually knows all the bits and pieces, mm -hmm. the manning, the experience, the health of the fleet and all that stuff to give them a go or no go. Right. Yep. So if yes. the chief says, no, it's bad because the chief has all the information necessary for that particular narrow question that's given to the colonel. If the colonel trusts that chief, that the chief, I mean, I'm using chief liberally, but it's the, right. whoever the maintenance leader is that knows the facts, that, that has all the information that the micromanagers normally are craving, right? Mm -hmm. If he has all that information and that, that senior leader, the colonel or whoever asks that chief and gets an answer and he trusts that chief, he should be able to take that to the four star and it's the gospel, right? Until that trust is broken. Right. And I, I don't know why that. And it could be because I'm not in those rooms with the four star and the colonel, but I just don't know how often that hap that trust happens because what I see a lot of is the colonel asking for all the minutia that the colonel doesn't need to make a decision if he trusts his people. Right, and once once you've established the the trust and 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 trust doesn't something that you just walk into, you know, you just can't walk in and there be this level of trust where you don't know the person. So uh, it takes a little bit of time to garner the trust. And then once you've gar garnered the trust, there shouldn't be any need for micromanagement after that trust has become a thing, if you will. You got to earn the trust. That's fair. And, and you know, I hypothesized that part of the reason micromanagement kind of started creeping more and more as time went on is because as the Air Force got lower and lower in resources between, as I talk about many times, you know, the age of the fleet, health of the fleet, experience mm -hmm. and manpower, that it's kind of akin to if you're poor financially, if you barely have enough, if you have one penny left over at the end of the month, every month, you're going to scrutinize every single expense and every single bill because you know that it's such a, a thin line between success and failure that you're going to have to allocate a lot of mental resources to making sure that you still have that one penny left over every month. And right. I wonder if the micromanagement from, you know, I mean, obviously this, the majority of my conversation is going to be from the mass sergeant viewpoint, looking at probably the group commander. Um, so I wonder if, if the reason a lot of the group commanders created a, a environment of micromanagement is because it was a razor thin margin of error that, that the, the tighter that margin, the, the more trust is required, if that makes sense. Like when you are so resource restricted, you'd have to have a really high level of trust in order to not be a micromanager, if that makes sense. It does. It does. Makes perfect sense. So you said something to me offline before our first podcast when we were like chatting to get it, get to know each other that struck me as initially a visceral sort of reaction. And then as you kind of walk through it, you sold me in like the first 30 seconds, but you said that you think pro super should be barred from doing walk around inspections for exceptional re releases. Go ahead and uh, explain the logic. Absolutely. And you know, uh, I, I say this, uh, in the, the manner and, uh, uh, I was forced to do exactly what you said. And of course, in, when I was writing, uh, uh, signing, uh, ERs, I was a master sergeant on an aircraft that I didn't grow up on. And so I'm looking at an airplane 
that I really didn't know all that well. And so I was just looking for surface things, if you will. Uh, and as I got to thinking about it and then later realizing it when I went to the inspector general team that I don't understand why I was looking at those things because in the book, it didn't tell me I had to. And in fact, in the book, all you were doing was uh, clearing the forms because the expectation was that everybody who worked on that airplane was documenting their maintenance. And so the documentation of that maintenance had to be reviewed for sufficiency to ensure that all of the discrepancies were properly cleared and that the maintenance actions that occurred on there were within the confines of tech data. And once again, that's why they moved to putting uh, references in certain corrective by or corrective actions. Yep. Corrective actions. So as I left out of the uh, IG and became a, a superintendent of an aircraft maintenance unit, I couldn't understand why my guys were spending so much time looking at airplanes. And I, I told them, I said, you know, are, if you're, if you're going to look at this, are you going to sign off the pre-flight? Well, I'm not doing a pre-flight. And as I got to trying to answer questions at the group for let's, you know, taxiways at Kunsan uh, were very rough and had a, you know, they, cause they were made with coral. So they were tearing up tires and they get to the EOR and there'd be, you know, red cords showing. Okay. Well, there was no red cords when it left, but when it got to EOR, there were red cords showing. Okay. We all know that it could do several landings after red cords, but you know, of course, red cord was the, the end all be all you removed it. Right. And the group commander at the time was wondering why, you know, I want to see your checklist checklist for what? And he was talking about the ER walk around. And of course we didn't have a checklist because you're really not allowed to build a checklist like that because it's not in accordance with tech data and you would have to have tech data references and all those things that went along with it. And my pro super, you know, and so we were, would answer that. And he was adamant that the more we look at that, the safer the airplanes and the conversation kind of stopped when I said, you know, sir, if we do all of these things, what is that saying to the technician that's actually doing the pre-flight that they have, they can do a half-assed uh, pre-flight because somebody's going to catch it on the ER walk around or at the EOR, you know? And so it kind of shook one of my pro supers when I didn't go out and look at the airplane when I signed off an ER and he says, you're not going to look at the airplane. I said, no, I pointed to the crew chief and I said, he looked at the airplane, right? And that's his name in the 781H under the pre-flight. And <laughs> pro super looked at me like I had three heads and couldn't believe that I wasn't going to look at the airplane. I said, if he's done his job properly, there's no reason for any of us to actually look at that airplane. And when we pulled around and came back, it forced that crew chief to go take another look at that airplane because he knew I was going to hold him accountable if anything went wrong. He, he signed off the pre-flight, not me. I just ensured that the forms were properly documented you know, in accordance with the TO. That was it. And what's really wild is uh, it goes back to uh, the story I wrote towards the end of my career and also goes back to the episode that really sparked this in your mind, which was uh, compliance culture with Eric Stromsky. As a, I mean, at the time I was like a 16, 17 year master. I'd been on F-16s the entire time. So I had a lot of, of experience under my belt. Mm -hmm. It's a very strange position 
to ask a master sergeant that knows a shitload about the F-16 to go out and do a walk around and then like limit the scope of what they're looking at. Because what really happens is you see something that's fucked up that is not in any way, shape or form like a servicing issue. And now you have to have an internal dialogue of, did I see it? Do I report it? And you have the pressure of you're in production. So you want the sort of, you know what your schedule has. There's, there's a certain amount of innocence mm -hmm. and purity when an airman catches a jet and he does a pre-flight and he doesn't know that this is the, the jet that production needs in order to make the six ship or the large force, whatever. They just know I caught my jet and I need to, I need to inspect it and make sure it's good. But if you're a pro super and you're out doing ERs and you're walking around looking and you find something that's questionable, you know, what's on your schedule and there's mm -hmm. a tremendous internal pressure to not find it. And I saw yep. that lots of times. One time there was like an EPU that was low and I was like, Hey, that EPU is low. And if it, and I think on a C model, you just service it up and on a D model, I think you had to do like a cold gas spin up because of the, the way the heat exchanger was set up or something. And I, and it was like right on the line. Like I'd get a mirror cause it was that fucking close. And I said one day, I was like, you need to get this fucking service. Cause the next time I see it, I'm going to, I'm going to red exit and you're going to have to do a cold gas spin up in order to make sure it's good. And then the next day it was fucking not serviced and it's like, it's, it was super frustrating, but I guess the point is, I don't have a lot of regrets for my career. I regret not seeing what you're seeing, what you're saying now. I should have, when I was a super, especially when I didn't want to be a super and I was like, fuck this job, it's terrible. I should have been like, no, I'm not, I'm not looking at any of these fucking jets. I'm gonna review the forms, I'm gonna call it a day and if you don't like it, you can pound sand or fire me. I mean, that was what I ultimately wanted anyway, so. In line with that, I had a pro super that was so worried about looking at airplanes because it was a turkey shoot that he failed to actually ensure that the forms were signed off. And when the pilot came to me holding a uh, set of forms that had an open red X with a, an exceptional release signed off on it, he was the pro super had already gone home for the for the day because he mm -hmm. was mid shift and I had him called back in. That was that was one of those times in uh in my productions production office uh, yeah, I, that worked for me that was a moment in their life that i don't think any of them will forget yeah because we we talked about that being his number one job you know to ensure that the forms were properly documented and that looking at the aircraft was something else and i'd already told the lead pro super i didn't want the pro supers looking at the looking at the airplane you know, I told them to not do that. And yet they did. And part of my conversation with the with the pro super is, is I'm trying real hard to figure out a way not to fire your boss right now for not listening to what I said. And he, it was the lead pro super. And he was kind of surprised that I said that. And then after the pro super left, I talked with my lead and I said, I told you mm -hmm. what I expected. So when I when I took over lead super, you know, cause I had a cardiac rhythm of a career, but when I took over lead super, I had a mid shift pro super who it was wild. She didn't do any pro supering and not because she didn't want to or couldn't. It's because every single pilot report discrepancy, she had to print out the FI of mm -hmm. here's the tree and highlight all the yep. things they checked and then mm -hmm. highlight, this is what fixed it. And then print out a history of that part number serial number across that air force whatever the database is mm -hmm. i can't remember the name for it mm -hmm. 
for what its history was. And like, and if it had a similar issue seven years ago at Shaw, everybody would be like, well, why the fuck did we put that D flick in? If it had a dual flickus in in 2008 at Shaw, and it's like, okay. So she would, and it was for every PRD. So if you had a bunch of code twos, she would spend half of her, half of her shift printing yep. out FIs, collating them into a pile. And then when you add on that, that she was also walking around looking at all the jets. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't pick, I didn't pick that piece up until we had that conversation a week ago or whatever. But at the time I was pissed off that half of her shift was squandered. Like she was not a fucking pro super for half of her shift because she was printing out FIs every day. Yep. And now when I add in the walk rounds, it's probably another two hours. So two, you know, three quarters of her shift was spent not managing maintenance. And my OIC at the time's like, well, we don't, we don't need everything printed out. We just need the stuff we're going to ask about. I'm like, okay, she doesn't know what the fuck you're going to ask about, which means she has to prepare for every possible question. Yep. And that was like, and that was because when, when that OIC would go to the squadron, the micromanager there would ask all these details that a captain doesn't actually need to know. The captain needs to know is, you know, what was, what was the fix? It was a deflick. Okay. Was there history? You know, have we done the deflick? Have we done the deflick nine times? If so, probably yep. we need to move on from that. That's it. That's yep. it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she spent every, and I, I told her right away, I was like, you're not fucking doing that anymore. And mm-hmm. I went to the meeting. I said, she's not doing that anymore. I'm going to look over the notes from the night before. And if there's any questions, I'll just ask her generally. But I pretty much know how an F-16 works. I'll be able to answer anything in the morning. And by the way, we have a, a spec section chief, a weapon section chief, and an APG section chief. That if I need subject matter experts, or if I somehow fall short of what I know, I'm just going to tap them. And not for, I need you to explain to me why your guys did this, because ultimately it's the pro super that decided. But how does this system work and does this fix make sense? And if there's no egos in the room and I'm just using them as, a, as an experience check and balance against the maintenance that was done, we should have a, be able to have a frank conversation. And that'll also build trust when the captain goes up. Mm-hmm. You can just say, yeah, it's good or it's bad. But Exactly. And that was, and what you just got done saying was exactly, was exactly my expectations of the leaders in my uh, aircraft maintenance units we'd ask a question i expected somebody in the room to answer it and not necessarily the pro super to answer it if it was a if it was something that happened that night well yeah i needed to know what happened that night but if it was something to do with maintenance or history or you know they should say well yes this aircraft has history then the next words out of the section chief's mouth is uh yes here's here's the history here's what we've done here's what we're going to do finished great awesome that's exactly what we needed to hear uh, you know and if that meant that the section chiefs showed up you know a tad bit early every day not you know not working a you know uh, seven to th- four whatever it they may work us you know six to three or six to two or whatever the schedule was that would give them uh, the amount of time that they needed to prepare for the meeting because as like I said, as the information rises, they're looking at, they're looking at an entire fleet at the group level, and they want to know if parts that are coming in are bad, if the maintenance that is being performed is subpar, and all of the you know other things that run through a, a leader's mind when they're being briefed on something. And so, if the section chief is answering the question, 
then you know the chief or the you know lieutenant captain major whatever it is that's running the amu would have that information as they would go forward and they may not ever be asked but if they are asked they have the information you know it's that sounds like micromanagement it to to yeah well yeah and you know what to a, to a certain to a certain degree it, it certainly is uh and i go back to feeding the information fire if you will the you know every level needs a little bit more information because they're looking out the expanse of 60 90 100 airplanes that are sitting on their ramp and you know they are needing more information but once again trust the people at the level and and randomly they'll they'll ask go wasn't that the airplane that we had that deflick issue on last week and there shouldn't be any eye raises and looking down and wondering if it was that information should be at the fingertip of the of the person briefing the the group so yes sir no sir whatever you know what you described with the section chiefs showing up a little bit early having the history having the answer that also to me speaks to trust right Mm -hmm. like i feel like if your production section was doing their job appropriately which is they're the ones running the history or they're asking the technician, hey, you know, just, you know, anytime you put, go to put a part in, run a history and let me know if there's an issue. And if there's no information provided from the technician to the super, then the super can confidently walk into that morning meeting and go, there was no history on that deflict, mm-hmm. right? Right. So it seems to me that having the section chief sh- show up a little bit early to research the fixes the night before to make sure there was no repeats or any sort of that stuff is a band-aid fix to a production section that has somehow broken a trust with the AMU leadership. Does that make sense? It does. And in, in some cases, yeah. And, and I, I had a thought and it just kind of escaped me uh, uh, for the, for the moment uh, regarding that. Cause when you were saying that I was thinking about uh, how I was, leading an AMU and my expectations of the production staff and my expectations of the production staff was to ensure that the um, expediters were expediting to achieve that day's, that day's schedule. Mm -hmm. The pro supers looking for that day's and day plus one. And then the lead pro supers looking for the rest of it. Yeah. Months out. Yep. They're looking at the, you know, two weeks, month out, whatever it is. And my expectations of my section chiefs is they needed to understand and know what was going on with their maintainers because they were, they were, in, they were charged with organized training and equipping. Mm-hmm. Okay. The production office was responsible for plan schedule and execution. Okay. If the section chiefs didn't know what was going on with their technicians, and didn't realize or know that they weren't troubleshooting properly. That's part of their job was mm-hmm. to organize, train, and equip. Production should be telling them, "Hey, you know what? They they weren't doing so good on you know troubleshooting this this problem." But it shouldn't be anything that the section chief didn't already know. Yeah, that's fair. I got accused when I moved from pro server to be a specs uh, section chief. I had one of my guys come up to me after like a month or two. And say, hey, it feels like you're just a pro super sitting in our office because I would read the morning package every morning. Mm-hmm. I would breeze through the crew chief just because I had crew chief in my blood, right? And then mm-hmm. if there was an impound, I would 
not me as the impound official, but I would be very judgy and I would read what other mm-hmm. impound officials were do. I'd read that. But I would I would go and I would read every single specs notes because I knew I needed to be able to answer any questions about why we did right. this over and over. And sometimes I would see a fix that didn't make any fucking sense. And I would mm-hmm. ask the the guy, whoever did the fix later, you know, I would answer in the meeting and be like, this doesn't seem like a strong fix to me. And a lot of times mm-hmm. it would be with a with a with an evil eye towards production because I know ultimately at the time production was the one that blessed this particular fix. Like it's my job to go talk to my guy if he suggested this fix and figure out how he came to that conclusion. Either I'm wrong or he made a mistake. But in that moment, it's ultimately the pro super uh, decision. So very often I would say, this doesn't feel like a good fix. Uh, you know, wh- how did you guys come to this conclusion? Cause the notes aren't clear. Um, yep. So I would go back to my guy and ask questions about the fix. And eventually I started to get tired of it. Like, it feels like, you know, you're a pro super. I'm like, my job is to make sure that my section is doing the best quality maintenance, period. That's my job. So part of that's going to be reviewing what you guys do and making sure that, much like you said, I mean, I, I don't think I, I synthesized it as easily as you did of, you know, train and, and equip and what was the third one? I'm sorry. Organized train yeah. and equip. Yeah, I wasn't nearly as succinct as that, but it's what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, just so you know, the organized train and equip thing, uh, plan, schedule, execute. Um, when I was a pack F, I had to read a lot of doctrine and that was where, that was where I got that from. But it, as you break it down and you understand that and you take a look at your folks and you say, okay, so this is what these folks do. And this is what these folks do. Uh, and they have to meet in the middle and the middle is the technicians working on the aircraft. I expected my section chiefs at some point during the day, they should be out there with their folks watching, seeing, understanding what was going on. Yeah. Didn't have to be all day. Didn't even have to be, you know, 30 minutes. It didn't have to be an hour. It just had to be enough time to see what they were doing, see how they were doing it, see if they were struggling, understand their struggles, and then get with the production staff to say, hey, what's the history here? What have you been seeing? Have you been seeing this with these folks? And that was the dialogue that I strove for, for my folks to, to get to. And sometimes, you know, I pushed a little hard on some of it and I don't think maybe they quite understood what I was trying to get at. And and that was, that was my fault for not being more, being as clear as I should be with the direction. You know, as someone that was a section chief for a little while, hearing the you need to get out there on the line, which I, I ideologically 100% fucking agree with. And when I was a pro super on swing shift, as soon as I would do my nightly, I would build the schedule for the next day. And then I would bring my experts in for the nightly meeting to give them the schedule and then, you know, go around the room and who had what and which direction was everybody going. And as soon as that was done as a swing shift pro super, my night was calmer. You know, mm-hmm. I had like another three or four hours of just keeping the ship from crashing into the rocks type of deal. And I would immediately go out and I would walk the whole line mm-hmm. and I would stop off at every jet where people are working because it gives me a good sense to know how many people are on this fucking jet. You know, that's a good, it's a good sense of is your expediter allocating the right amount of people or do we not have enough people and do I need to temper my expectations? But I would do that whole walk and get to know people. And there was probably people that hated my guts and hated to see me. That's just the the price of business of being a pro super and someone that was admittedly toxic for a while. But as a section chief, I had so much shit going on. 
I could not peel my ass out of the seat to get out to the line. Right. And, and I attribute, honestly, I attribute a lot of that to micromanagement. Like if I hadn't, didn't have mm -hmm. to chase down all the other shit, I probably would have time to be an actual leader. Because I think when, if you try to hold in your mind the idea that the section chief's a leader, and then you see a section chief's daily tasks, those aren't leadership things. Those are management-esque things. Like the leadership is typically at roll call, and then yep. if an airman walks in and needs something, that's when the leadership like lever gets it gets actuated. But it's very hard to like go out and and be a walk the line leader because you're spending all of your time doing administrative tasks. Right. And I wonder, you know, it goes back to the conversation we had about my midship pro super. She spends so much time doing the non pro mm -hmm. super things that she's not even a fucking pro super anymore. Right. And I wonder if we put so much stuff on section chiefs to answer fucking questions for I wonders that at that mm -hmm. point, they're not even a fucking section chief anymore. And they're right. we're actually making the section worse by tasking them with answering every single question that comes to anybody's yep. mind. Yep. And, and part of my, when I would take over an air, aircraft maintenance, you know, one of the five that I would take have taken over and ran uh, as a chief, uh, I would give expectations, briefings, and, you know, I would usually end with your successes you know, are yours and your failures are mine. You know, you you fail. It's not your failure. It's my failure because what did I do wrong that caused your failure? And you know that that's what I would end with. And also, my expectation was you're going to meet your taskers on time. If you can't, then let me know. Yep. You know, if I have wiggle room, I'll give you wiggle room. If I have no wiggle room, then you know I need that right when I've told you that I've gotten a wiggle room. And you might be able to move some other shit that's on their plate right. off or delay it or let's find right. a way yeah and and so we're clear about a couple of things um as i as i gained experience in being a chief uh, i learned that prioritization of everything in my life was paramount i never realized how much that piece uh, played in my life and so I would consciously overtask some of my section chiefs to see how they prioritized. Oh, that's wild. To see what they would get done. That's smart and evil, by the way. It, yeah, yeah, well, and that would tell me whether or not that individual person was ready to move on to the next next level. And one of the things that happened um, at one of the bases, our group commander took, ripped all of the weapons loaders out of our use and started its own weapons flight. It, this person was ultimately told to knock that off. And I gave him the perfect out to put the weapons loaders back in. And I looked at him and I said, let me tell you something, sir. I have, I built my aircraft maintenance unit on a, a level of trust mm. and I need to know how far I'm, I said, I'm about to deploy. Yeah. I don't know who my, who my loaders are. I don't know who my, you know, leaders are. And one of the things that's important to me is I need to know how far I can push them before they break. I said, I will push them right up to the breaking point just to see where, at what point they have a complete meltdown. Then I know that's, I pushed them too far. And I also need to know what loaders, you know, are, you know, that, and I want to say that I can trust the most, but the loaders that have the most experience have the most maintenance uh, savvy te techniques and all that and you know push all of them to a level 
that would, you know, they would call it crushing. I would call it, I need to know how far you can go. Mm -hmm. And I would do that with some of the, with my section chiefs, just so I knew whether or not they moved on to the next level. I was thinking about the whole trust piece with the micromanagement, how when you don't have trust, the micromanagement typically kind of amps up. But I was also thinking that micromanagement very much creates an environment that lacks trust. Because I remember when I had a AMXS superintendent who I've written about at great length about how terrible he was, he would get into the so deep in the details and just, it seems like he almost reveled in like peeling people's skin and watching them squirm because they, they had, they were trying not to say, I don't know. And I don't know was the answer. Or they were trying to conceal some malfeasance, either in mm -hmm. the maintainer themselves or how they ran their unit in particular. Like one time we had um, a cannon plug disconnected on something. I don't, I don't. It wasn't like a safety of flight issue, but whatever that avionic system was, it was totally inoperable. The jet, you know, the jet came back. It might have been in code three, but it wasn't like a gyro or anything crazy. And when the technician was out there, the cannon plug was like hanging off. And of course, you know, as a, as a super, uh, I, I was a lead super at the time, but I think my super on swing shift, he just like, hey, look in the history, see the last time we were in there, see the last time that we touched that. And it was like years. So it was like, okay, either, either we were in there and we didn't document it or, you know, it could be it just like wasn't quite secure two years ago. Mm -hmm. where it was like you were spinning it on and it was clicking, but it wasn't like the tightest click type of deal. And after two years of aircraft vibrations and stuff, it just rattled itself off, call it a day. And my OIC came in as I was getting ready to go to the afternoon meeting for the group. And he was preparing to go to the wing standup after that. He's like, hey, what are we going to say about that cannon plug? I'm like, well, it says here that it was off. And then they reinstalled it. They verified that the it's tight and it's locking. There's no obvious stuff. It ops check good. He's like, yeah, but off sounds bad. Can we, can we instead say that it was just unseated? Because that's technically, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to say it's off. You can say whatever the fuck you want to say at your meeting. But I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to get me and you in the same fucking script. Mm -hmm. I'm never going to join your script. You might as well just join my script because my script is more accurate. Mm -hmm. But it makes me think that he was afraid of all the follow-up questions. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it had to do with they didn't trust, so they wanted all those details. Yep. Instead of, we, we investigated it, it shouldn't happen again. That mm -hmm. should be literally the end of it. Um, so he was trying to avoid those questions. And in so doing that micromanagement culture likely made him more untruthful and lowered the trust that generally people have. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's self-feeding micromanagement lowers unit trust, which in turn justifies more micromanagement, which is why very often micromanagement starts to get into a fucking, a real mm -hmm. spiral. Mm -hmm. And then as it stacks up and what we're really talking about is processes, like mm -hmm. I, it never fucking occurred to me that a super looking at, an, at a jet during an ER, that process was a manifestation of a lack of trust and mm -hmm. micromanagement at the same time. And then it makes you think, how many other things stacked on top of each other is a lack of trust? Like, I'm not even gonna, I'm not gonna drag red X's into this conversation because right. certainly there should be IPIs and red X's. That's perfectly mm -hmm. fine. That's really fucking important. Yes. But I'm talking about anything and everything else. Everything else that you have, double work, 
because you don't trust the first fucking person that did it. Like you're creating processes to account for bad people instead of addressing bad people. How many times did you change a part because you couldn't find anything wrong, but you knew that you couldn't answer the mail without you having to have changed a part? And what's frustrating is like you have two options here. One is you return to service and see if you can't fly it and get more data. And the other one is hold the motherfucker down and let's let's strip it down to the wires, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And yep. both of those, in my opinion, depending on the history, are actually like legitimate options. And a fucking pro super hates both of them. Well, yep. not a pro super. Um, a maintenance leader that is, is not like strong-willed or yep. assured in, in themselves to pick either of those options. Because sometimes the answer is strip it down to the fucking wires and find out what the fuck's wrong with yep. it. Let's get yep. done with this. Uh, but yep. the change of deflick and call it a day, that's that's just rolling shit from one day to another, which is the opposite of what a pro super is supposed to be doing or a maintainer yep. in, in general. Yep. Well, when I was at Kunsan, uh, I had this um, this issue where our guys were doing what I called one year maintenance. Uh, they would do it. They would do it just to get it to the next story. And I they couldn't believe that I was willing to not fly an airplane or to give them the time to route through that airplane and fix it properly. And it took them a while for them to understand where I was going in my, uh, my perspective on that piece. I hated changing a part because we had to change something in the system. I hated that. I wanted them to bring me the smoking gun. I wanted them to bring me the chafed wire. I wanted them to bring me the cannon plug with the bent pin. I wanted them to find the problem and make that problem go away forever. Yep. But they needed the time. They needed the time. And production, of course, was push, push, push. Um, and, of course, that was my expectation of production was to push that maintenance. But I also needed them to come to me because I was the one that was going to look at them and say, yeah, yeah, no, we're not flying it. And I would give them that out and that would rest on my shoulders. That decision would rest on my shoulders, not theirs. And until I got a lead pro super in that, you know, didn't necessarily ask me for that. He just did it. And I didn't have to, you know, give him that out. He just took care of it. And of course, because he took care of it, I let that roll as long as we were making uh, the sorties that we needed to make, you know, because yep. that was our job was to ensure that the pilots had the sorties that they needed, you know, and um, uh, those were, those were my candid conversations with every one of my ops officers and uh, flying squadron commanders was my job is to give you good sound, solid airplanes. So when you go fly, your missions are effective. Every mm -hmm. one of them. Yeah, I wonder how much that micromanagement creeps from the maintenance ops relationship where ops doesn't trust maintenance. Mm -hmm. And when maintenance says they can or can't do something that ops either in their ops group meeting or in their wing meeting or squadron commander to squadron commander or whatever it is, creates this narrative where it's exposed that they don't trust their AMU. And then that that cross pollinates to the maintenance group commander and then the micromanagement starts like if the ops group commander's like hey my guy's not at the squadron or saying that your guys can't get anything fixed and he's talking to the maintenance group commander 
he's gonna be like oh, i'll take care of it and then it just starts running wild and i don't know how many operators realize how much their commentary within their their pilot bubble really affects outside the pilot bubble i don't know and and you know uh just kind of wrap up a little bit my conversation with the uh the op squadrons uh that you know i would be associated with was you have to be honest with me because i'm going to be honest with you and the honesty is going to hurt sometimes and oh by the way give me your bird book oh yeah and they said you know well we don't have one of those i said (laughs) good because the next time i hear somebody say hey we know that this airplane has a problem and i go back through the history and you've never written it up you and I are going to have a very uncomfortable conversation. Yep. And so they, they would be very upfront with, with me uh, with regards to that, because I told them honesty is the only thing that's going to keep our relationship sound and solid. We need to be better than everybody else. Yeah. I had a, uh, when I was a uh, lead super, I had a DO. His name was Heath Wimberly. He was really good. Like you can, I don't know. It feels like sometimes you can just tell when people come from like a blue collar background and they're not in a, they're not in a traditionally like blue collar sort of environment. And they, they, as soon as they get around maintainers, you're like, oh, okay, you're one of us. And you just happen to like end up in that camp, but I get it. And that's how he was. Unfortunately, he moved up to, I think, um, safety, flight safety or whatever. And a new guy took over and he was not of that same cloth. And we were chasing no starts. And I, I was definitely, uh, as a seven level and, and later in my career, I was like, I was, no, I, I got good at no starts because I got my ass thoroughly kicked in no starts for like nine fucking months. And it made me really good at it after nine months of torture. And we were chasing some no starts in, in the unit. I was a lead super four and I was trying to like get people to come to the real fix, not the GFS cocktail, which I had banned essentially as a shotgun fix. And one of the first scheduling meetings, we had a jet that was persistently no starting. It's like, you know, we're working it. We're chasing it. And he's like, well, I want you guys' morning package. I'm like, you guys, you, I said, you get a copy of our morning package. It has the the debrief notes and the flying schedule and the status of our aircraft. He's like, well, no, because I hear that there's like seven or eight pages at the end, which is all your maintenance notes. I want that. I'm like, there is not a fucking world where you get that. Just like I don't go over to your unit and ask you for all of your pilot training and personnel records to know which pilots are good and which pilots are not. I don't do that. I trust you that you're going to run your unit. And I'm telling you we're working on these problems and you're never going to get my notes ever, ever. I was in a, I was in a unit where they were getting that note, those notes. And when I found out, I cut them off. And then the DO came to me and says, why am I not getting them here? I says, cause it's none of your business. What the the safety of the aircraft is in my business? I said no. <laughs> Actually, that's my business. And also goes back to trust. Yeah, you fly the airplane, you do the whistle thing, you do the flying thing, you do the pilot thing, you do all of those things. My job is to provide you with safe, effective aircraft, and how we get there from here is my business, mm-hmm. not yours. And he didn't really like that. But, you know, I said, this is where the trust is. Yep. You trust me. I trust you. So, but, uh, yeah, we, we had a group commander. We, they, they were having some, there was some issues with safety. And he 
instituted what he what was called the safety observer program (laughs) and every job had a person in a uh orange vest and their sole job was to stand around and watch see the step watch the step see the step watch the step and read the step to every person and they would perform the maintenance believe me when that would happen we would lose hundreds of sorties in a week Mm -hmm. you know and that was that was probably the worst feeling i ever had as a aircraft maintenance unit leader Mm. because i there was nothing i could do to not do what the direction directive was all i could do was stand there and then the operators would just get mad because they were losing sorties and i'm just going you're yelling at the wrong guy this is this isn't something that i can fix and i can't make it not happen i have to make it happen because it's a lawful legal order there's nothing you know that isn't legal about this nothing so i guess that brings me to probably one of the final questions is how do you mitigate or dampen or end micromanagement how what's how do you do it nope nope it's everybody it's that it's that person who is in the position and after i got out we had a uh, program manager who was who's was a super micromanager and his health was yeah became very very poor mm-hmm. i think that happens a lot by the way it does it does when you micromanage you can't control and because you can't control yeah, you stresses. can't your, yep. The stress goes through the roof, and then mm-hmm. as the stress goes through the roof, it brings your health to its knees. And you feel personally responsible for every fucking possible outcome. Right. Yep. Exactly. E- exactly. And so as you try to mitigate the micromanagement, what you end up doing is you're providing that fuel to that fire because you want to give them everything. So they'll just stop being stressed out. Mm -hmm. But what you can't do is you can never give them enough information ever. Mm -hmm. It's never going to happen. Mm -hmm. And until you accept the fact that you're never going to be able to give them that, that information that's going to make them stop stressing, Mm -hmm. you know, you're going to continue to, you know, um, propagate. That's how they get layered, right? Micromanagement. That's how, the super notes turn into um, also, I need you to print out all the FIs mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. the ER turned into you need to do walk rounds and now you need to look for these specific things, right? Because it keeps yep. adding on, it keeps layering on. And, 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 you know, I would always ask, you know, if, if I could see the, the schematic or show me, show me what you're talking about because what you're saying isn't registering in my head. Mm-hmm. One, maybe because I'm, you know, I am not the expert. I have experts. And that was the thing that I always wanted to make sure that when I gave my expectation briefings is you understand I'm not the expert. I'm not the chief that spent their entire career on this airframe. I'm not the expert. You are. My expectation is, is you're the expert. If you fixed it and you told me this is the fix, that's the fix, Yep. you know, but if I have a question about it, I'd like to see it. You know, I want to see, show me the diagram so I can understand, you know, how you derived at, the, at that answer. And sometimes it's nothing more than just my morbid curiosity getting the best of me. And, but I would, but I would make sure that that was offline. And I, yeah, the offline part is what matters. It's when you ask the question, 
I think that fucking matters the most. Like if you show up at the morning meeting, you know, the AMU level or the squadron or the group or whatever, you show up at the morning meeting. I think it's also interesting that we have meetings and preparation for meetings and preparation mm -hmm. for meetings. Uh, mm -hmm. I feel like that there's not enough time for that, but yeah. I feel like that is the physical manifestation of micromanagement. But yes, yeah, concur, absolutely concur. <laughs> but absolutely, concur. like when you show up at the meeting and and I don't know can't be the answer. Mm -hmm. It I don't know needs to be able to be the answer. Like if me and you were in a meeting, like I worked F-16s for for twenty years, you worked F-16s for one and a half ish plus time in ATCIG, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. arguably I probably know a shitload about F-16s. And if we're in a meeting and you're like, hey, Chris, can you explain to me how the leading edge flap system works? Mm -hmm. I'd be like, uh, I can't now, right. but you know, when you come back from the group, I'll give you a mm -hmm. quick sort of theory of operation and, and answer that question. Yep. Okay, Absolutely. great. If, that's, mm -hmm. if that works, that isn't micromanagement. Right. That is asking the question and, you know, wanting to just enrich yourself so you know it better. Mm -hmm. But if it's at the morning meeting, you're like, hey, how does the LEF system work? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I'll have to get back to you. It's like, well, I need this information now because mm -hmm. the squadron's going to ask and the group's going to ask. And I need to be able to provide that information. Even though you're still the AMU chief and all you're asking for is how does the LEFs work? Those are two radically different scenarios because in the in the in the former, it's you trying to get smarter, and I have I can work it into my schedule, and it doesn't have to be answered immediately. And it's also yep. a a poll system where mm -hmm. I don't have to prepare answers for every single potential question you have in the morning meeting. I can be in the morning meeting and and survive by my wits. And if there's mm -hmm. a question that's beyond what I I can pull out of my ass, then you've created an environment where we can go back together and I can teach you the, the nuance of the system in detail later on. It doesn't have to be ready immediately. And those are two, yep. even if it sounds like it's the same fucking question in the same fucking meeting, all it is is, is it okay to say, I don't know? Is, is, is the chief or whoever's running the meeting allowing I don't know to be the answer? And if it right. is, that really dampens the micromanagement really quickly. Yep. Two things. One, I terminated the squadron meeting because my expectation was is the amus were going to go to the to the group meeting and they were going to speak on their behalf now i knew it was going on because i had a pro super that would you know go talk to the pro supers they would bring me you know the reader's digest version i knew it was going to happen i didn't know exactly what was going to happen but if there was an incident that required my attention i'd pick up the phone and i'd call them i'd say hey what happened well, we're not too sure we're doing an investigation on it. Okay, if you have any further information, make sure that the group knows that when you when you speak. Done. Walked away, and was that was that. When I would sit and I sat across from the briefers, and I would watch their body language when they would brief and knew whether or not they knew what they were talking about. And then afterward, we would have a little conversation about, hey, your body language was selling you out. Yep. Uh, the other one was is when I was at Kunsan, my my midship pro super would show up and he would have papers on the floor and papers in front of him and papers everywhere. Uh, so he, because he was trying to anticipate the question that would be asked. And I asked him, I, no kidding, no kidding. I asked him the absolute basic question. And he looked at me like he was like a stunned mullet. Oh, he couldn't and, see the forest for the trees. He had too yeah, much Yeah, he couldn't see the forest yeah. for the trees. And he had all of this myusha around him. And he said, I don't know. 
the one question I didn't prepare for, you asked that question. And it was, it was, I mean, it was the most basic question. So he and I had a little conversation afterward. I said, stop bringing this stuff. Stop worrying about that. What I need you to do is go out on the line. You're going to get that information by being out on the line and doing your job as a pro super. If you're trying to be a pro super from the office, guess what's going to happen? You're not going to know uh, what's actually going on. I said, so be there, understand, know, talk to your expediters when wander around. And then when you give yourself an hour or two before the meeting to get me, me and the captain, the notes, the captain and I, the notes, and that's it. We'll talk to you uh, when you brief us. And if we don't, if you can't answer the question, we'll get the question. We'll get the answer. So um, for me, going back to the, how to, how to prevent micromanagement, I found that if I just stop doing the dumb shit, and -hmm. I don't mean, it's like, I remember uh, same OIC, who I really enjoyed, we were just in a bad command climate, so Mm -hmm. every time I was doing what I thought was the right thing to make shit better, it made his life a living hell for the people he worked for, which is really unfortunate. Mm -hmm. But we were were flying earlier than normal one week, and he came in and said... uh, Hey, the, the commander, this was the deputy group commander of maintenance who I wrote a long story about, uh, called there's, well, there's smoke, there's fire or smoke doesn't always Mm -hmm. mean fire. Um, he came in and said, um, Hey, he wants to make sure that the airfield sweepers are going to sweep before our jets taxi in the morning because we're going up earlier. And I'm like, they will. (laughs) I was like, they will. He's like, well, can you call them and verify that they're going to be sweeping before the schedule? I'm like, uh, airfield gets the flying schedule. They, they run all that. He's like, yeah, but the commander specifically asked for us to make sure the sweepers are going to sweep. I'm like, they will. You can just tell them they will. He's like, well, the, your phone's right there. Can you call? And I'm like, no, I can't. He's like, okay, well call them. I'm like, no, like, that's not going to happen. I'm also not going to call security forces to make sure they have a gate guard. I'm not going to call the chow hall to make sure they're going to open at the hours they say they're going to open. Like, I'm not going to do any of that. Like, I'm not going to call everyone around the base to make sure they're all doing their fucking jobs. So that way we can do our jobs. Because yep. if, if that's the case, then I, I don't have, I'm not doing my job anymore. And he's like, well, I need to give him this answer. I'm like, the answer is yes. And then he went in his office and he called airfield ops and made sure, but it's like, you know, whenever I'm, whenever I see something that is transparently micromanagement, whatever it might be, my reaction is I'm not going to, the, the key to breaking micromanagement is don't roll it down. It right. stops at you. At you. And yeah, sometimes correct. the answer is going to be no, or it goes back to what you said, set your priorities. And that mm-hmm. micromanage task is going to be the lowest fucking mm-hmm. priority that yep. I have. And I'm talking like below clip in my fucking toenails. Like, yep. I'd love to get to your airfield uh, question, but my toenails are looking ratchet and I got to fucking get them trimmed down before I can call airfield ops. Once I get that done, then I'll call airfield ops for you. That is a good idea. Micromanagement doesn't go away because that is still happening to the people that it gets to. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, and this particular one particular leader, group commander, or whatever, was um, a person who would literally call past people. 
And he learned that. And I know where he learned it from. And but he would call past a group of people to get an answer. And let me tell you something, I always had uh, my Blackberry on me or my phone on me because uh, his expectation was in real time. Everything happened in real time. Yeah, I think at that point I just get fired. I'm standing here looking right at the, you know, the center line pylon that isn't there anymore. What happened to it? Pilot said that he, you know, went to pickle a uh, 33 and the Sioux and the Mm -hmm. pylon left the airplane. (laughs) Well, what happened? Yeah, this airplane is impounded because we had to figure it out. Well, of course, nothing was wrong. We're pretty certain we know what happened, but of course, you know, we spent two weeks digging into this airplane to find out what was wrong and got with the engineers and we said, master arm. And he goes, that switch never goes bad. We have never had an instance where that has ever gone bad. So, um, you know, as we were investigating this pylon, having departed the, the aircraft, you know, we were talking with engineers and we we're trying to figure it out. And by the time we, you know, got to the end, as as I asked you, you know, we had to change something because we had to, we had to, quote unquote, do something yep. because we couldn't accuse uh, an operator of having done something wrong. Okay, now could we prove that he done something wrong? No. Oddly enough, the, you know, when we did a download, we really couldn't tell because yep. it's an older airplane on some airplanes. Yeah, we could tell because on, mm-hmm. on a particular airplane that had two AVIPs or two flight control computers and he shut one down uh, and then before it got back up, he shut the other one down. And so that answers that, that answers that. And we could tell it in the maintenance right cartridge. And we literally laid it out and there was a space and time that, and of course, without, without having that on the aircraft goes into its uh, emergency system mode, if you will. And you have to land immediately. And thankfully they were close enough to get back home. Okay. So I want to wrap up, but I feel like this isn't done. This topic, I feel like this topic isn't done. Yeah. Yeah, What I'm probably going to do is, I imagine we're probably going to revisit this in a month or two because I really want a chance for this, what we said today, to kind of marinate a little bit. And I'm also going to see what the comments come out in Facebook uh, to see what people say. Um, And then I want to revisit with new ideas. So I want to pause for today. And it was a good talk. And every time I have talks like these and I kind of realize that there is below the surface, there's more shit going on. You can kind of see all the elements and ingredients for it it's always helpful and i hope uh people listening enjoyed it too do you have any final thoughts curtis i just agree with you that you try and stop the the micromanagement at the level that you can stop it and i tried to do as much of that as i possibly could and then i will try and push it back up to the level above me to say hey look can you just stop this i mean can you at least give us a reprieve for a little bit of time that we can get our collective shit together and be able to support everything that's going on. If we can't, we're going to keep spinning ourselves into the mud. Yep. And but absolute good point. Stop it at where at, at your level. Yep. Okay. Well, I appreciate you joining me again, and I'm um, looking forward to the next time. Adios.